So imagine you're the first player uh, in a marketplace and you know, you're literally building the first widely adopted premium smartphone brand. Of course, I'm talking about BlackBerry today. And today we're going to talk about how did they come to be? You know, what happened to their rise? You know, they were like dominating the market, selling millions of their uh, products every year. They they literally had uh, like over 50% of the U.S. market share and over 20% globally at, at their peak. And uh, some even called them crackberry because they're so good. So we're going to talk about how does it relate to product management? What's the role of product into that? And of course, the other side of the story, what happened when through their whole failure situation, right? And what made it really interesting, you know, there literally books uh, on the topic out there that you can pick up and read. But today I'm excited to uh, talk with a uh, uh, very special guest, Andre Markey. Uh, he's a co-founder and CEO at Productize, uh, one of the major product conferences and actually a consulting company out of Lisbon, Portugal. He, he uh, lectures uh, you know, all over the place at uh, Lisbon Universities, ISCJ, UCP, and PBS on topics related to entrepreneurship, product, and innovation. So get ready, guys, for an interesting talk on the rise and fall of tech products with Andre Marquis. Hey, I'm your host, Cyrus Sleeman, and welcome to PM Hub Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing you fresh and unique insights from product leaders and tech entrepreneurs. All right, Andre, welcome to PM Hub. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. For sure. No, it's great to have you today. So, you know, in many ways, BlackBerry was the producer of the world's uh, first widely adopted premium smartphone brand. And, you know, over the decade that were at the time, you know, the, the BlackBerry became the device of choice in corporate America. You're into, you know, as a very good security at enterprise level and had lots of awesome business functionalities. And actually at its peak, uh, they own over 50% of the U.S. and just over 20% of the global uh, smartphone market, uh, market share. And, you know, they're selling crazy every year, over 50 million devices at a time. And, you know, some even refer to the products as Crackberry, <laughs> uh, just just how because they're so good. Uh, and uh, the stock price, of course, were through the roof for like around 200, over $200. So what were some of the, what were they doing right? What are some of the reasons uh, for this massive success and how does it relate to product management? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think BlackBerry is a super interesting uh, story because it's born out of a company that... Uh, had been founded in the early 1980s by Mike Lazaridis. Um, happens to be a Canadian of Greek uh, ascendancy and had been a, uh, a great engineering student. And in many ways, I think Mike was akin to, to Steve Wozniak, the, the well-known co-founder of Apple. He was a tech guy, but he was also an entrepreneurial one. And... And if you think about it, Research in Motion or BlackBerry, just let's keep with the BlackBerry name for the rest of this conversation, if you will, survived their first decade being a sales-driven company. And they were doing all kinds of stuff from advertisement to computer modems and what we would now call IoT for industry. And in the mid-90s, they were able to embrace a product-driven culture but mostly, not because they thought, you know, we're going to create a product, but mostly because they were forced by telecom carriers um, in the U.S. 
um, and, and specifically by telecom carriers in the East Coast to come up with ways to monetize their new data networks. So these guys, if you, if you remember those times, they were launching new networks. They had this new network, which, is, which was a new data network. Um, a, a company, BellSouth, uh, approached uh, RIM and they told them, hey guys, we need uh, something to monetize. To, to make people use this data capacity to send messages and to receive messages. And, you know, if you remember those days back in the early 90s, the best thing you had was basically very basic pagers where you would have to call back um, through a phone number or, uh, you know, uh, and that, that was it. And, and BlackBerry email communicators are this product that comes from the vision of, the founder, Mike Lazaradis, has one of the very first people that understood that email would become the killer app for mobile data networks. Um, and nobody thought email would come um, to, to, to be a killer app. People were still pretty much into text messaging and, and beeping and so on. And, and has, as RIM or BlackBerry embrace that, they become the de facto product-driven company that they had ended up being well-known for. And they did that for a decade. So for a decade, they created incredible devices. So from the late 90s to um, the late 2010s, or the late 2000s, so until 2010 or so, RIM launched addictive devices, the, the, the Crackberries, right? And, and services like BlackBerry messaging, one after the other, and they were striking successes. Um, in many ways, I think they were the, the apple of the early 2000s. And the question is, why weren't they the apple of 2010? And I, and I, I think the leadership of Lazaridis products uh, leadership was fundamental for the success in the, those days. I think he had this Steve Jobsian obsession with detail, with industrial design quality, he cared for his team's well-being and success. Um, but then eventually lots of things happening in the company. And, and that was really where they, they were not able to, um, to, to take it so well. Right. Yeah. No, I love that. So basically, it was a strong product leadership. It was a demand for innovation. And you mentioned the, 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 the clients, the U.S. Mm. clients were asking to solve problems and not just building features, which I think has got to do a lot with innovate, being innovative in your area. And there was a team and culture there as well, as you mentioned, like th those three, okay. BlackBerry, just to compliment on that. So actually, these guys in America, they were actually looking for features because they were, they were stuck into text. And that's the way they, they knew the world. They were like, we're happy with text, so don't go for email. But I think Mike... And uh, the guys at BlackBerry, they understood email was such a strong, would be such a strong driver. So I think they deserve a lot of credit because they went against the mobile carriers, um, desire to stick with what they knew best. And they said, no, we can do email and we will ship email devices to our clients. And that's what they ended up doing. And, you know, that was the success they, they had for 10 years. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, no, on top of all of this, what would you say was the role of customer obsession, you know, in building products that user love, like the BBM one? 
Mm -hmm. So, um, in this case, BlackBerry, they were pretty much focused on executives and, and people that, that were pretty addicted to their emails and they needed to have constant updates. And, and in many ways, the, the customers themselves, they were as obsessed with, with Blackberries as you could imagine. They would, you know, there are stories of people sleeping with, with Blackberries on, under their pillows just to make sure that they were not losing um, you know, uh, the latest and, and so on. So I, I really think that in the beginning, they were pretty obsessed with crafting um, a, a, the best product they could. I'm not 100% sure they were customer obsessed. Um, it's just one of those cases where um, it happens to have real really perfect product market fit and then you have it but not because you have this you know burning desire or you're super obsessed with your client i think they that's actually one of the reasons they ended up losing that market share it's like because um th those guys they understood oh this is great this is exactly what we need we need to have email on our pockets all the time um and and for some reason, that customer obsession was was lost along the way. There's lots of reasons that happen, and you know you have to keep in mind that it's really hard if you are a product manager to please everyone. So that's like rule number one of product management, right? Is you cannot please everyone. So you have to be very careful how to please. Um, and who you want to please and how many people that market represents, right? Um, and, and it's very easy to do mistakes there. It's very easy. You know, you have a restaurant and, and you know, if you are a restaurateur, you, you, you are a product manager by definition. So who are you going to please? And a lot, most restaurants, they, they fail because they don't understand who exactly who they really want to please. So role of customer obsession is, is super important in building products, but you have to be very careful to really understand who is your customer and, and what they really want, right? Yeah, no, for sure, for sure, absolutely. Uh, now, you know, even after, we're gonna talk a bit kind of like on, on the, this is, we talked about like kind of like how how they rose to where to be and let's let's talk about uh the failure side a bit you know even after mm -hmm. the iphone entered the market in 2007 yeah. and google came out with android os in 2008 blackberry was still like you know it's still not really like still doing well you know they're not destined to, for failure and in fact you know blackberry they continue to dominate the market the smartphone market through 2010s like you mentioned and you know they still were holding up to 40% of the domestic and nearly 20% of the global market share. Now you know today, uh, as we're speaking in 2020, like BlackBerry pretty much has almost no market share at all in smartphone market, and their stock price, you know, have been always around you know single digits, you know, for the past a couple of years. Now, what are, what are some of the causes uh, for for this massive fall? Uh, from that top and how, how does how does it relate to product management yeah i think that the fall of blackberry is one of the most interesting stories of a tech product driven company rise and fall because at their height they were a 70b company 
And that story is beautifully described in, in a book that I just recently um, got hold, which is Losing the Signal by uh, journalists Jackie McNish and Sean uh, Silkoff. And in many ways, I think that the downfall of BlackBerry is, is attributed to the launch of the iPhone. And I think, you know, that's probably right, but that's, that doesn't really explain why it happened. Because BlackBerry was outmarketed because Apple and Google came from the US um, tech industry. They understood that an ecosystem of software apps, internet services was going to drive the second wave of data mobility, not just email, not a specific, not a specific phone appliance will, will dominate. And, you know, for companies like Google, that, that made lots of sense because that's exactly what they were, they were selling. And, and for companies like Apple, that was going to make a lot of sense as well because, in fact, what the iPhone is, is, is a Macintosh on a mobile format. So no matter how good you did email and BlackBerry did it best, like you said, they kept rolling for several years after the iPhone. And one of the reasons that the BlackBerry email system was still a, a premium system compared to even today's experience of email is, is not great. I think if, if, if you had a BlackBerry in 2010, you could argue I had a better mobile email experience in 2010 with my BlackBerry Bolt than I have today with my iPhone 11. So I, I think that's a very reasonable thing to say even today, 10 years past, right? So the other part of the story is the why. Why an organization with so many brilliant people, so much product execution was not able to steer ship. And my understanding is that um, the, the top executives at, at BlackBerry, they didn't develop a culture of products uh, lieutenants and product innovation that was empowered enough to lead this disruptive innovation and product discovery initiatives. So whoever would come up with maybe great ideas to, uh, you know, to, to, you know, to, to, to develop new products was probably not going to go too far, uh, under, uh, Blackberry. And um, and having this also having this entrenched entrenched position of success in the executive smartphone market, when iPhone and Android appear, I think those guys they thought, you know, those are toy-like devices. The first iPhone was such a basic piece of of hardware in in in, in sense of the you know the quality of the screen if you compare it today and so on had no keyboard. Uh, it had no private messaging system. It didn't have MMS. It didn't have, so, it, you know, keep in mind, it, 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 it lacked lots of features that most people at the time they took for granted. Um, but, and, and, and it was totally underperforming email experience compared to the Blackberries back then, you know, five to, to zero. So in insights, I, I think they probably did, they didn't really uh, understood or they were not taking hold of what professors Clayton theory of disruptive innovation, which is, um, which is, you know, the, the, the book from innovators dilemma it has been published many, many over 20 years ago. And if you ask me, if you read one book on product innovation, read that one, because it really explains that what was happening 
and why they were being disrupted by this new uh, kid on the block, which was the iPhone. And even if it didn't have all the bells and whistles, it, it had all uh, it had a, a number of other things that people at the time considered more convenient and more interesting. And they were they would eventually make the switch sooner or later. And that exactly what happened um, for four years into the game in 2015, BlackBerry um, basically stopped doing, um, um, you know, being the company they, they were, the, 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 the CEOs uh, left the company and, and now they're just a, a shell of their former, former, former self. Yeah, no, I love I love that innovators dilemmas book that and uh, that you mentioned. You know, the jobs to be done theory that he talks about. I've read that book. It talks about the cause and effect, and that that's you need to actually how you need to go about figuring that. What are the causes of are the customers actually going want to use your a product like yourself? And he talks about the the disruptness part, which basically says if you focus solely on delivering business results and you know and it, it, it it's a bit short-sighted you know and if, if you forget about to solve for your users uh, you know your competition will catch up to you and they will bring something that actually users want more like just like when you said you know that the blackberry was missing a lot of those uh, features uh, the the iphone was missing a lot of the features that the blackberry had like the uh, the email experience or like you know the uh the messaging system but it was not probably as important for for the users as as at the time, right? So yeah, uh, push, that's, that's a push great point. It's crazy. You didn't have push notifications yeah. on the iPhone until three years into the, yeah. the iPhone, like 2009 or 2000. You know, yeah, 2009. So they had like two years leverage of of those push notifications of that beautiful red light uh, flashing on on the BlackBerry that was not there on the iPhone. Mm. Um, but still, they made it. Yeah, and and, yeah. and if you ask me, I think it has a lot to do with um, the fact that they were not empowering the their teams, um, not, not just their engineering teams. I mean, um, the, the the board now has. I'm going through this book, losing signal. I understand they didn't even have a, a proper board because all the power inside uh, inside BlackBerry was um between the two co-ceos between mike and um Balsili. they had pretty much everything they they didn't want to have a board of directors on top of them letting them do this or that so they they called to themselves pretty much everything and that had you know disastrous um, results as as we understand them today yeah for sure. Now I love how we talk about the empower teams, and and we know Marty Kagan talks about. He actually wrote the book on this whole topic. But I'm I'm curious to know, like, what are your insights uh, into you know empower teams and their role in product innovation? Mm -hmm. So yeah, we we invited Mike to to, to speak at Productize two years. Uh, sorry, um, Marty Kagan to speak at Productize two years ago, and he, he gave this this. Uh, it gave us this book called um, Turning the Ship Around by uh, fellow um, David Marquet. And we're not related, by the way, as I understand yeah. it. Uh, he was a, a ship commander, submarine commander at, um, at the Santa Fe submarine and other submarines in the U.S. Navy. And he, he applied this radical leadership methodology where he would 
empower his teams to um, a way that was really unorthodox in the, the US Navy, and I guess all navies in the world, maybe with the exception of the Israeli one, which is to let their um, submarine, his submariners to take hold of accountability of their actions. And, and, and by doing that, he was able to go from what was considered one of the lowest performance uh, submarine crews in the U.S. Navy to one of the top performance um, uh, submarine crews in the U.S. Navy. So, and of a nuclear submarine, which is always something that you want to make sure that it's running properly, right? Just in case. So, you know, I don't really have any other uh, significant insight. And I think Marty Kagan talks beautifully about the subject. If if you want to know more about it, just search for Marty Kagan's talk on, on YouTube, he, he, uh, the talk he gave at Productize uh, is, is online and you can watch it, you should watch it. But what I, what I think you can take stock from what he's saying is that only if you have truly empowered product teams, you can aspire to innovate in a sustainable way because that's really the only way. And every single successful product company, they can strike um, you know, success not having empowered teams, but that success is not sustainable. So after a while, you know, even, you know, that, that happened in RIM. Mike was the perfect guy from 95 to maybe 2005 because he was the perfect guy to understand the that low bandwidth and the limitations of the technology. He was the email guy, but by the moment, he was no longer the perfect PM for, for that cycle. Someone else maybe younger, maybe with another pedigree, would have jumped in and said, okay, let me just take hold of this and, and maybe prepare the company for the next wave of innovation. So innovation comes in, in, in waves um, and and you have to, to have the right people to take those waves. And only if people are, feel empowered and, and they feel that they they can take hold, they, they will jump in. Otherwise, people will just be back off and they will not be able to to be productive inside the company. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Uh, so like in your opinion, like now we talked about, you know, the rise and fall of the story of the BlackBerry, Andre, like w- what do you think is the role of product management overall when it comes to this, you know, rise and fall of tech products? Yeah, and look, I think product manager is the pivotal figure to anticipate change to outlook for innovation opportunities and keep a tab on competitors and new technologies. So this is, you know, nobody's saying this is an easy job. This is an incredibly difficult job because it requires that the product leadership um, has to have on one hand, a good peer to peer relationship with the business executives. To a certain extent, that is probably what did not happen at Trim. The company became too much a marketing and sales oriented uh, under uh, the leadership of Basili, uh, sorry, Basili. And that is really a cautionary tale that is, is told if you see some of the Steve Jobs videos on, on, on YouTube when he was ousted out of Apple. Um, is always saying, don't let the company be run by by the by the Martin Bozos because those guys are going to kill the company, right? Again, it, it and he told this, you know, even before um, 
um, Clayton's book was out there. Uh, if you see videos from the early 90s and so on. And eventually, uh, BlackBerry's bet on applications ecosystem, which happened like in 2009 or so, was half-hearted at most. So if you have a, a product management role inside a company, you, you need it. You need this he or she to be empowered to develop a product relationship with executive leaders or a productive relationship with them. Otherwise, you might just look somewhere else. If you are not able to talk with the executive team and 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 be empowered enough to to do what needs to be done, then probably that means that that company is not ready for prime time. And if you are fighting uphill against uh, executives in your company and you're saying, you know, you need to empower me, it's very easy to say you need to empower me. But of course, no one will empower you if you don't, I mean, they could, but usually you need to, 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 to you know, to get hold of that empowerment uh, somehow. So you need to uh, prove your executives that you deserve to be empowered. So there's like a number of techniques that you can um, you can use to do that. Uh, some of them are, are also explained by my my fellow uh, product manager and friend Daniel uh, Zacharias in his um, blog Folding Burritos. And um, but again, if if you cannot get hold of that empowerment, if you feel that you are always in fighting mode with the, the executives inside the company, then maybe you should look elsewhere and find a company that has a more productive relationship with his, um, you know, between executives and, and product leaders. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Uh, now you mentioned about, you know, uh, PMs having an outlook on, on innovation opportunities. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, in a lot of cases, PMs don't have a technical background. And uh, let's say, for example, they feel like, AI. Now, my question is, is your suggestion that the PMs need to go out and maybe even learn how to write an algorithm to that fine level to understand like the latest? Or is this something that you think the engineering could kind of help and kind of like give insights from their end into the latest trends in, in the kind of like their field? So look, I, I've been, I, I think I changed my perspective on that through the years a little bit. Um, I was under the impression that um, product managers should come from a technical field. They should be engineers at heart. And then as they go through their journey, they would become product managers. I think I changed that perspective. And I've, you know, I've been knowing and, and, and getting hold of people that come from many um, areas of expertise and they, they end up being very good product managers as well. Um, what I always seen from all the product managers that I talk to is that the ones that want overachieve are the ones that keep on top of their game, right? I think that's valid for lots of fields, not just product management. So if you are in a company and you are a, pro a technical product manager, you have to be on top of the technical possibilities that your industry is working on. And you should have 
a culture that is broad enough to also look on the sides because most chances are that if you are doing diesel engines innovation is not coming from the latest diesel um, engine the, the innovation will come from electrical or hydrogen or you know another type of technology so if you're just looking into diesel 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 can be the best diesel engineer in the world but then innovation will come from h2 or evs drive uh, or whatever it is and it just you're not paying attention so does it mean that they have to be the, the the best h2 and the best ev guy in the world i don't think so i think you just need to understand the basic blocks of the technology understand what it entails what it allows what is the performance and and understand what it can do to improve your product offering if you do that i think that that's that would be great if you don't you risk being um outmaneuvered and sometimes being outmaneuvered is is um, costly <laughs> you know, yeah it's it's it is what it is you you will lose and if you lose then you might not have another chance to you know to fight back 100 percent. i love most that most times i always say you don't right because if you lose email and then you you lost your chances to strike back because this is nuclear war product technical product management is is mad like it's mad has in mass uh destruction mad right um and we're all fighting with this nuclear weapons at each other and if hmm. you cannot develop a system of intelligence that prevents you being nuked once you're nuked it's game over it's most chances is game over right so yeah your job as a product manager is never to be nuked so <laughs> never to be nuked <laughs> but to never be nuked you have to make sure that um that you know exactly what your competitors are doing and why they're doing so there's lots of sun tzu in there uh which i understood is also was also one of the the mantras of this co-founder not co-founder but co-ceo of uh blackberry jim Balsilli. but it's very easy to forget some some of your sun tzu as well like what you hear so far make sure to never miss an episode by clicking on the subscribe button now this podcast has been made possible by listeners like yourself, and I'm thankful for your support. Now, let's head back to the show. Uh, now, there's been some news recently out there. There's this Texas-based startup, uh, a kind of mobile, mobile security company called Onward, Onward Mobility. Uh, they actually teamed up with BlackBerry to announce that uh, they're going to bring back uh, you know, that, that flashback phone that they had uh from the rising rising from the ashes you know with 5g connectivity now yeah. what are your thoughts on that do you think they're going to make a comeback look i don't think so uh to be very honest i think we'll, we've all seen uh, a number of mobile comebacks the, the motorola clamshell phones even nokia's and i think that's basically an act of futile nostalgia because once you lose consumer confidence on the brand as an innovator on behalf of the user, and this is something that Marty Kagan talks a lot, right? You are, ha, as a company, you are innovating on behalf of the user. Just if you put it that way, it, it's really powerful. And once the user loses trust that you can innovate on his behalf, he's going to search someone else to do that job for him, right? So who can I trust 
that is going to keep innovating on my behalf. So now people trust in Apple. Now now people trust in in Samsung. So I see I see it very hard to get it back. You know I, I think it's 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 you know it's a lost fight. But the U.S. mobile market is today a de facto duopoly between Android and iOS. And in in you know in retrospective, if only uh, BlackBerry had launched their QNX operating system uh, some years earlier, and you know QNX was actually coincidentally founded the same year than RIM in 1984. I think the story might have been a little bit different, um, allowing developers to jump into the apps ecosystem and having some edge over the iPhone when the iPhone eventually came out. And that's a challenge of product. It's a super competitive um, Formula One race, nuclear war, whatever you want to call it. And there's very little for a space for mistakes. So once it's, it's game over, I really think it's game over. There's very little cases that I remember of companies that were able to come back and have this comeback stories um, on on the market that they were fighting for. Sometimes they they re, they rebirth has something else, um, doing something totally different, but they should maybe search for other spaces of innovation other than exploring or exploiting people's nostalgia for something that was great in the past, which is not now nowadays. Yeah. And I think a lot goes back to the branding piece as well that you mentioned uh, that, you know, once mm-hmm. you lose that brand, then, you know, it's pretty much gone. There's no point. Now, now my next question is, Andre, how can a product manager learn from, you know, history to build lasting products? Or like I say, products that, that, you know, really excel at what they do to offer the customers? That's that's a magic question to me. I'm, I'm very fond <laughs> of history. Um, and again, if, if you think about Sun Tzu, it was written uh, thousands of years ago, maybe 2,000 years ago. And and we're still applying and the reason we're still applying something that was written so many years ago and you know it's still you know the bible of every single uh leadership course is because the human nature doesn't change that often right um it might change in the next 50 years we're with you know the neural link and things like that but um but at least for the last uh i don't know a couple hundred thousand years since uh almost sapiens it hasn't changed that much and we keep doing the same mistakes and you know hopefully uh we can learn with with history so if you think about some of the oldest products that we have still around and in manufacturing and market today are drugs like aspirin from Bayer, baby food products maybe from at nestle uh razors from from gillette and all these products they were created in the 19th century. And what those leaders, uh, you know, Mr. Gillette understood and, and so on, was that, uh, what is a product? I think they understood very well what is a product. And some people still don't understand what is a product. There's nothing wrong about not understanding, but I think it's good if you stop for a moment and try to define what is a product. And a product is, in my opinion, a synergistic uh, combination of branding, core value proposition, intellectual property, um, user interface, and scale economics. Because if it doesn't have any of this, um, it, it's not a product. If it 
doesn't have branding or it cannot be branded, then it's not a product. If it doesn't have core value proposition, it's not a product. It doesn't have intellectual property or it cannot be IP fied some way. Uh, it's not a product. It doesn't have a, a you know user interface or a, a way to, to communicate value. It's not a product. It doesn't have scale of economics or economics of scale. It's it's not a product. So there's like there's been a million drugs launched since aspirin from Bayer. The active principle of of aspirin can be synthesized by any 13 year old kid at his high school chemistry lab. But the truth um, is that with, with with the brand that aspirin has and the trust that they have with the consumer. They are still selling aspirins by the billions. It's still one of their largest, um, one of the largest drugs in their portfolio. It's like over a billion euros per, per year just on aspirin. And that's a lot of money selling us the silic uh, acid. So I'm not suggesting you create a product for the next 100 years, um, but I'm suggesting you ask as a product manager, you have to keep asking frequently the following questions. How can you create a brand that that is long lasting, long standing uh, trust with the consumer? How you know? How can you create a user interface that is still enjoyable and is 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 going to to be easy to use and easy to understand? Um, and is it still because things change? And what is your core value proposition today? And is it still killing the pain of the user? Um, and how often do you update this? And and of course, can you protect the intellectual property? By the way, just to give the Rim example, um, they, they did protect very well their intellectual property. And that's one of the reasons that they have been able to survive. Um, and of course, intellectual property, it's, it's a brand, it's inventions, it's design form. And can you keep improving the scale of economics? Can you, you know, make it um, as scalable as possible? And, and sometimes as you come with other products, the scale of economics will go down because new products, you don't start with, you know, you don't start at the top, you start at the bottom. So you have to keep improving the scale as the, the product matures. Um, so I think that's basically what you, what you should take hold of um, of history um, when you're when you're building lasting products, but don't get too frightened, you know, because uh, 100 year products are rare, and uh, I don't I don't think everyone is is set to create one of those. Um, but who knows? I think that's a very interesting question. Are we going to have Google in um, you know? 30 years from now because you know if you think about it google has google the search engine and i'm just thinking about the search engine has been a fairly successful i would you know basically monopolistic product for the last 20 years or more and there are very few products that have survived 20 years has best in class so is is the world in 2040 still having Google as the only search engine that people use, like 90% market share? I don't know. But if they keep answering these questions and they keep evolving the product, chances are it might be. Uh, very cool. So my next question is like, how, how can you 
stay on top of your product and what are some resources you recommend our listeners to check out? So I think, you know, there's like a million podcasts on a good pod, podcast on product nowadays. Um, you can attend conferences and, you know, the 2020 is the year of online conferences. So there's very little, and most of these conferences are now selling at the discounts, which is also the case of productized conference, because of course we have much fewer costs. There's no catering, there's no venue, everything is online. So there's little excuse not to to take, um, you know, to go to free conferences or, or conferences. I think networking with peers, either virtually or, or in person, is a great way to keep on learning. Uh, keep helping companies delivering value for customers in ever-changing scenarios, um, which is the job of the product manager. And if you are stuck as a product manager, the product community uh, is, in general, very eager to help. So if, and, and that is something that you don't see sometimes that often people for different reasons, they're not allowed to share their, their internal company's uh, problems. But if, if you do it in, in reserved circles, maybe you can do that. And I think fellow product people are very eager to, to help and come up with creative ways to, to help you stay on top of your product game. You know, the, the, the reason is never, oh, I, I asked for help and nobody helped. I think the reason is almost the opposite. You didn't ask for help. And then because of that, you failed miserably or you didn't understand or you thought, you know, it's such a hot shot that uh, you're doing everything right. And then you, you were actually not because you, weren't, you didn't, just didn't want to confront yourself with, with follow product managers and, and people that could help you. Then losing the signal which is uh, a great story, business story of a business that didn't go well. And the market is, is full of success stories um, of companies that are making and breaking and inspiring because they're doing great stuff. It's, I think you learn so much when you, when you see what happened in, in companies that failed in product and why that failed. Because again, you can take stock and learn from history. Then um, at Productize, we have a, a fairly interesting YouTube channel that has been um, curated with contents from Marty Kagan, talks from Teresa Torres, Melissa Perry, Dan Olson. So Dan Olson, um, and, and you can, and if you want, you can just watch those videos. They're so insightful. They're full of gems and things to, to learn from. And of course, if you want, um, to attend productized conference this year, it's going to be November 26th and November 27th. The two days are on sale and the last day is actually free. So you can just attend by booking your ticket at conference.productized.co. It's going to be an online conference. So even if you're in Canada, you don't need to, to travel to, to, to Lisbon this yeah. year, but we promise to be back has an in-person event next year if, of course, the, the sanitary condition is um, is good enough. Um, we are also launching, uh, and that's actually quite something quite new, a, a new digital product management fundamentals postgrad or a course here in Lisbon with the local uh, business university, and um, and if you want to to train or if you want to acquire the, the product management fundamentals online 
because this this is going to be an online course as well you can you can do it it's an english course and you can um and you can take it for from october until uh mid uh, until the end of november and i'm also leaving the link so if 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 you want to add it to the um to the podcast details that'll be lovely for sure awesome thank you i'll make sure to put the uh uh, the links in the description as well for for all. I'm, I'm definitely gonna attend to the uh, for the conference, the Product X conference coming up, Thank and you. I'm gonna Thank put you. the link for the rest as well. Uh, and yeah, so my last question, you know, where can our listeners, you know, uh, find you online, you know, follow your insights? Yeah, I mean, I I usually tend to be fairly active on LinkedIn, uh, and that's probably the best way to uh, reach to me. Just search for my surname, which is Marque, and you'll find me there. Um, and I'm posting maybe on once per month on product and technology and history and and stuff like that. And uh, you can, if you can, feel free to just drop me a message, and I'll be glad to take it from there. Well, Andre, thank you so much for being on uh, PM Hub Podcast today and talking about the rise and fall of tech giants. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was really, really a, a great pleasure. Well, that's it for this week's episode of PM Hub Podcast, guys. Uh, now, if you enjoyed this episode and this show overall, uh, I'd love uh, if you could share it on your social media and consider leaving a five-star review so we can reach even more audience. If you have any suggestions, definitely feel free to reach out. Uh, you can reach out to me at cyrus at productmanagerhub.org. Or like, you know, on social media, if you can find me, I'm all over the place. And now we can get all the tips and action items of, of this uh, episode for free at this bit.ly link that I'm going to give you. It's bit.ly forward slash pmhub14. Also, make sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't uh, miss any of the upcoming episodes. I'm Cyrus Slayman, and until next episode, stay safe and healthy.